Good morning, everybody. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I ended up taking some, for me at least, drastic action in order to preserve my mental health. Um, it's an act I'm not particularly proud of, being neither uh, particularly brave nor admirable. Um, and I don't necessarily recommend others follow suit, um, but I did it and it happened. And that is that a couple weeks ago, I, I logged onto Facebook and I methodically unfollowed everybody who posts stupid stuff that annoys me. Um, <laughs> yeah, testify, brother. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, pretty much anybody who disagrees with me, who keeps posting stuff that, that just brings my day down, it's like, you know what, no, boom, muted. Um, I didn't unfriend anybody. I didn't have any dramatic showdowns. I didn't, uh, you know, confront them and try to get them to see the error of their ways and repent. It was just, no, silent. I'm, I'm not dealing with this. Not, not now. Um, and so that happened. <laughs> uh, I, I took the discretion as the better part of valor route, and uh, I just muted them for a while. I tell myself I'll, I'll probably, you know, try and filter them back in once I'm, I'm feeling more up to it. But I just wasn't feeling it. The the constant drumbeat from from people I know, people who are my family, people I've broken bread with, people I consider friends, saying objectively terrible things about people precisely like me. Um, and it wasn't directed specifically at me, but at the same time, they know, well, I'm a Christian. You're saying these things about Christian one-to-one -one transfer. You're kind of saying about this about me, and you wouldn't say it to my face, would you? Because you're five feet tall. <laughs> um, but that, that, that happens. And so I didn't want to fight, and I didn't want to deal with it, so I just activated the, the echo chamber sound bubble that the technology affords and I decided to shut it out. And so for the moment, at least, my, my feed is just this big, beautiful wall of people who agree with me. Um, it's a lie. It's a, it's, a, it's a vicious lie. But it feels great. Um, and I bring all this up uh, because my, my sad little opting out of the digital marketplace of ideas is, is, is it a writ small version of, of a larger and deeper truth. And, and this is just, you know, again, one, one sad little man's story. But at the same time, it's, it's indicative of something that we do experience in a larger sense. And that's just that in, in all times and places, believers have to face a little bit of a disconnect between themselves and the world. That there's, there's there's this disconnect between us and the values of the larger society, whatever that society is, whether we're in our context or other believers in their context. Uh, there's, there's this drumbeat coming from the culture that's going to leave us drained, fighting, folding, um, falling silent, or just fading away. So today we're going to be looking at an awesome, beautiful downer of a chapter, Exodus chapter 5. Uh, and so we'll be looking at the whole thing, verses 1 to 23. And as our scene opens, Moses has answered God's call. He's gone back to Egypt, the land of his birth. He's been prepared for the real conflict God's been preparing him for, to face up, off against Pharaoh. Moses went to his own people. He performed the powerful signs and wonders that God empowered him to do. The people believe. They're like, yeah, Moses has come to save us. God's coming. This is great. Everybody gets pumped up. The music is playing. And so... On this high note, after this good point, Moses goes out to Pharaoh. What happens? Well, Exodus chapter 5. 
Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Then Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, or they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Thus says the Lord. If you've spent any amount of time in the Bible, you have, uh, you're familiar with this phrase. If you spend a lot of time in the bottle, you might not be. <laughs> Those words, they're the prophetic formula, letting people know that what's about to come is the word of the Lord, not what the prophet thinks, not what the believers want to hear, but the authoritative revelation of God's will. God is calling for himself a people out of the world, claiming them as his own, and that message is delivered to the world by Moses, or in this case, more specifically, to the most powerful and relevant representative of the world as it currently stands, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The representative of God comes before the representative of the world as it currently stands and announces, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. And there is a reply. 
Thus says Pharaoh. There's a response. There's a, for, for lack of a, a kinder term, there's a messy divorce coming between the people of Israel and the Pharaoh, between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom that God is creating. And as it approaches, as, as that divide, as that conflict comes to a head, the world does not take that news, that development, lying down. I want to look with you at this passage and then highlight three elements that, that I see in this narrative that I, I suspect we also see in our lives. And perhaps by, by following the story through, uh, we may emerge on the other side with, with some answer to this, this problem of the disconnect believers must inevitably face um, in the presence of the world as it is. And, and now normally this is the part where I, I tell you, here's the big idea, here's what we're going to talk about today. And I don't want to start there today just because um, our text doesn't start with answers, it starts with problems. Uh, we, we work for the answers on this one, so that's what we're going to do today, so let's do the work. Um, so I think we see three things, that, that there is, are irreconcilable differences between believers in the world, that the world responds to this, this state of affairs, and then there is inevitable fallout from that response. So as to the first point, there are irreconcilable differences between believers and the world. What do I mean by that? Well, Moses comes to Pharaoh directly and asks him to accommodate this straightforward, maybe not easy, but straightforward request. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And as readers of the book of Exodus, you know, we're, we're going through, we're, we're naturally attenuated to see things from Moses' and God's, by extension, point of view. Okay, this makes sense. God is saving this people. Things are bad. He's going to free them. They're going to make a country. You know, God created the world. He owns it all anyway. He's actually being pretty nice by having Moses come and, and respectfully say to Pharaoh, hey, you're going to have to let this one group go, uh, but I put you in charge of all this. You're welcome. Um, does Pharaoh see it that way, though? I mean, we see it that way. We're reading the book of Exodus. We're coming along after the fact. We have all of this foundational knowledge and assumptions. But does Pharaoh see it that way? Is he coming to that throne room meeting with the same understandings and assumptions that we are? Some dude and his brother walk into the throne room and say, hey, uh, I had this hallucination out in the desert. Um, and you have to cripple your economy and severely undermine your social authority because I said so. Uh, let, let your slave populace go. And, and again, this isn't for any reason that Pharaoh sees as sane or valid. What's he going to say? What does he say? Well, he refuses the request. In, in part, I think we can say it's because he implicitly rejects the, the worldview and assumptions that are behind the request. In verse 1, Moses says, thus says the Lord. And in verse 2, we have, but Pharaoh said... Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is this God of yours, and why would I obey him? Egypt has gods. Pharaoh's considered the human deified representation of one of them. Why, why, who is this the Lord character? Uh, I don't know him. He doesn't pass muster. He doesn't come up on my radar, why would I listen to you when you come into my throne room and says, thus says the Lord? And more importantly, uh, at least, you know, for, for the purposes of how I see people operate, for, forget the foundational assumptions, what's it going to cost Pharaoh to grant this request? A lot, economically, militarily, um, just personally in terms of his own, I'm sure, very moderately sized ego. Um, <laughs> We, 
we need to stop for a moment, because it, it kind of sounds like, okay, well, we're reading the book of Exodus and we're defending Pharaoh's point of view. I don't know how to preach, but I know you're doing it wrong. Um, but we need to stop and, uh, and take a moment and observe this, this vast chasm that exists between believers and unbelievers in this area, in this area of assumptions. We come to our throne room meetings such as they are, and we don't have the same conversation with each other. A, behavior, uh, a believer responding rationally to the holiness of God and the implications that would have on his or her personal life looks like a total nutcase or a tyrant to an unbeliever. They, they don't get it. Why would they? And conversely, when, when believers watch how non-believers lead their lives, and they're just acting out rationally the, the assumptions of their own worldview. Life has no meaning, and then you die. And, and, and as believers, we see that, and we're like, that is just stupid and dangerous. Don't do that. But again, from, from their point of view, it makes more sense. Proverbs 29:27 puts it like this, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Irreconcilable differences. Because here's the thing, belief in God, the answered call to, to serve and obey God, will always throw a massive wrench into the business as usual operation of the world. That's just how it happens. There's no act more offensive, more nonsensical than obeying God because it will mess with the system every time. It upsets the apple cart. Because when people start believing Crazy things start happening. Uh, people's loyalty to the king or the nation or to their family starts drifting over to God. And then those institutions, those kings, those nations, those families are like, hey, hey, that, that loyalty, that, that priority, it belongs over here. Uh, people, people start holding up valued and enjoyed and shared cultural practices to a new and foreign scrutiny. And believers start opting out of those practices or clamoring for them to be reformed. And they start complaining and everybody gets annoyed and social cohesion fails and everyone's like, these believers are a menace. People start asking for slavery to end, for women to be valued, for ch children's lives to be protected. And, and other things so obviously demented by the world standards that historically speaking, if you brought these up as things that needed fixing at various points, you would have been laughed out of the room. Now, Christians have an answer for, for why this is so, for why this happens. That um, The Bible tells us that the world's in a state of continued and ongoing rebellion against the righteous rule of God. That, that mankind attempted to enthrone himself, un unwittingly enthroned the devil in the process, and has persisted in a broken and fallen state to this day. Because fallen and sin-sick cultures won't spontaneously fall into a pattern of holiness and godliness. It's just not going to happen. You won't trip into living in accordance with, with God's nature and character in a fallen world. And, and there are absolutely beautiful and true elements of God's original design in our cultures. Um, but they're, they're few and far between. And, and they're often marred and, and, and rendered imperfect by, by the shaking human hands that have attempted to, to recreate what God intended for us from the beginning. Last week, as, as we studied um, the second half of chapter 4 of Exodus, um, one of our big takeaways was that our primary identity is in and through our relationship to God. And, and that undermines the world's authority. It has to. Because something outside the world's authority, namely God himself, comes in and takes the primary place in somebody's life. 
Some part of the world always gets demoted when in a believer's heart God is recognized as king. So to side with God is in some sense to oppose the entire world. And so for believers there will always be something of a disconnect. There will be convictions of belief that will forever lead to these irreconcilable differences we have with the larger world. And, and I bring all this up because I think as believers, if we get this, it becomes easier to have mercy on non-believers. We, we can understand in some way where they're coming from. They don't get us. Why would they? We're speaking in English and, and they're hearing in Greek. And, and when we recognize that, we can remember from, or benefit from remembering that they don't know what we know. We, they haven't received what we have received. And, and rather than getting mad or despondent or checking out, um, we can, we can acknowledge that as the tragedy that it is and as the call to, to pray and witness that it must be. Um, because, you know, when I say irreconcilable differences, the fact is, is uh, the, these relationships, yeah, they're acquaintances, but they're also our family. They're, they're our parents. They're our, our children. They're our spouses sometimes. So I don't say that there's this... This, there's this friction, this gap, this, this misalignment between uh, believers and unbelievers lightly because in, in a lot of our cases, in my case, it's, it's the source of some of the greatest pain I experience. Um, so I don't, I don't state that there is this gap between us lightly. Um, many of you struggle with that every day. Moses asks for the people's freedom and Pharaoh doesn't buy it. Yeah, right. God said, let my people go. No, you're lazy. You want to lead these people away into lies, idle gossip, wishful thinking. Why are you distracting the people from their real work, their real lives with all this God talk? See, Pharaoh ascribes to Moses and to Aaron a motive that makes sense from his worldview. They're lazy and they're liars. He can't accept their claims at face value for what they are as advertised. It would completely upend his universe to do so. So he filters it through the lens of what he believes is personally possible. And he comes to the conclusion that these are lies concocted by idle tongues. And so he says to himself, well, I may not be able to keep them from lying, but I can take away all that free time they're using to come up with this nonsense. And so the world responds. Pharaoh responds. And I, I don't mean just to Moses. They've been going back and forth um, already. I mean, faced with this challenge to his authority, to his worldview, to a sense of what's crazy and what isn't, he formulates his official response. And, and, and we saw that, um, I think, most clearly starting in uh, verse 6. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they shall make, uh, that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. By no means you re shall reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. If you have time to whine, then you have time to work. That's the essence of it, right? Um, <laughs> uh, during, during my stint in the corporate world, I did some time supervising, and I always had enough self-control to never say that, but I sure thought it a lot. Um, as my employees would come into me and just, oh, this person's mean to me, and that person is this, and this other department, and I'm just thinking, if, if you spent as much time working as you did whining, oh, the things we could do. <laughs> Pharaoh gives the people an impossible task. Make bricks without straw. Um, uh, now, I haven't made many 
mud bricks in the ancient Egyptian style, but my research suggests that the, the, the value of the straw is that it aids in aeration by breaking up the, the, the bricks a little bit. It adds structural support, kind of like poor man's rebar. So it, it, it's, it's an essential element of this going quickly and well. And denied that, um, the situation became a lot more difficult. The Hebrew workers were used uh, used to being supplied with enough straw to, to meet their daily quotas. And their foreman brought it to them, and the foreman received it from the taskmasters. And, and then suddenly Pharaoh says, no more straw, but demands that output remain exactly the same. Output needs to stay the same, but you get absolutely no resources or support. Good luck with that. And as just sort of a fun extra twist of the knife, and this is all pretty clearly intentional, um, Pharaoh makes the foremen deliver the news. And what's interesting is the taskmasters are Egyptians. The foremen are Israelites, ethnic Israelites who've been raised up a little bit, the lower, lower, lower middle management uh, of the slave people, but they get a little bit more power, a little bit more authority, a little bit more responsibility, and I'm sure they feel pretty awesome about themselves day to day because of it. And Pharaoh makes them deliver the message. They issue the response to the people. Moses cries out, thus says the Lord in verse 1, and in verse 10, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. The, the world hears the claims of believers and responds. Pharaoh responds with the power that he has, the power that he has available to him. He uses the power of the state, violence, and beatings and threats and human nature itself to get what he wants. He calls hope and the promises of God a lie. He, he plays the cards he's holding. He lays down his mighty hand, such as it is, hoping to turn the people of Israel against Moses, break their spirits, and lead them into submitting forever to the yoke of slavery. Because, and I think I hinted at this last week, the, the, the narrative, the drama of Exodus is pushing us towards this question, who will the people serve? Whose voice will they hear and obey? Pharaoh or God? Thus says the Lord, thus says Pharaoh. Irreconcilable differences brought into sharp focus by a brutal response from the world. Saying, you'd better obey me because it could always get worse. Biblical texts that, that deal with persecution have an extra layer of complexity in our Western American context. Um, because when, when we do talk about this subject, there, there's really two approaches I've seen to handling the issue. Um, one is the, the fiery alarmist who, um, who, who forever sees the bloody suppression of US Christians as just around the hill. Um, and in any secular law or act that may or may not impinge on religious freedom, they see as the step immediately preceding mass graves being filled with the faithful. Um, and sometimes we're like, yeah, that, that, that law, that, that new politician really might impinge on religious freedom. That's a little scary. And then, you know, other times we're like, I'm not sure how you get from a 0.03 per 4 cent tax increase on bubblegum to, to mass graves, but, you know, we're not sure about that one, buddy. Um, so there's that approach to it. But what I most often see, what, in my own experience at least, is that in an effort to not be that guy, so many times in our churches when we engage a biblical text that talks about persecution, there's always an addition that we tack on, always a disclaimer that comes in at the beginning or the end, that while, yes, persecution is a part of, of the Christian life, uh, we here in the U.S. have it pretty darn good, and we don't really experience persecution, or at least not real persecution. 
And so our response to these words often becomes just saying, okay, we acknowledge that Christians historically were persecuted. We acknowledge that someday we may ourselves may become persecuted, that we should pray for believers who are currently actually persecuted. But at, today, at least, blessedly, these texts don't really apply to us, and we close the Bibles and walk away unchanged. And I want to push back on that a little. And I say that gently because I've said those exact same things. People I love and respect have said those exact same things. And in part, it's because it's true. We're meeting in the courthouse. We have it pretty good. Um, our, our, our kids are playing at the, the feet of the symbol of the city and, by extension, the government's power right now. That's pretty cool that, that that's OK. Um, so I, I don't discount that. But at the same time, I suspect that the danger for us is that we will look at how good we have it and assume that we are exempt in some way from the world's response to us as believers. Or that the powers that give shape to the worldwide rebellion against God, the, the forces that rule over this present darkness, are not responding to our belief in any meaningful way. Because it sounds absurd when we think about it. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I live in the US, so the devil doesn't know where I live that doesn't know where my marriage is weak, doesn't know my fears and insecurities and temptations. And it's like, really, are you sure? You only need to draw a sword to silence believers after you failed to do so by having a near constant cultural drumbeat going on saying that only idiots believe in a magical grandfather in the sky. Our culture, our sin-sick, satanically ensnared culture is responding to us. I am deeply glad that we are not being shot for our faith, but do not mistake the absence of gunshots for the sound of peace. You are being responded to. You are being acted upon. That The self-appointed representatives of the moral order and rebellion to God are declaring a million times a day from a million gnashing mouths, crying out with a million different discordant and shrill voices which all converge at this one point. Thus says Pharaoh, faith is a lie, hope is a worm, and moreover, I will not let you go. Do you believe you're exempt from the world's response because you don't presently hear howling at the gates? Do you think the world is going to let you go without a fight? Do you think it's going to take the rebuke of you leaving lightly? Or do you think the world will make you pay for the insult? Examine your life, your journey in or toward faith, and ask yourself, where is a cost being exacted? Where, where does a derision, a loss, a penalty await me if I believe, if I let it know, be known that I believe? And, 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 and I say this, because it's not just an effort in looking for and finding offense. Oh, yay, I'm persecuted too. I get to feel special. But it's, it's, it's a strategic countermeasure. Know where your buttons are being pushed. Ask yourself why the world went through all the trouble of pushing those buttons and perhaps begin to question the narrative which calls faith in the promises of God nothing but regard for lying words. Um, because the fact is you don't even need to be a believer, a Christian, to see the world responding. It's already responding to you before you ever formally accept faith in Christ. It's acting on you to keep you exactly where it wants you to be. In its kingdom, in its power, bound in chains and comforted only by that, that soothing refrain, well, at least you're not one of those poor misguided Christians. But what's the fallout? Because that's, that's really what this text is drawing us towards. What is the fallout? from the world's response. 
there are these irreconcilable differences between believers and the world, and the world has this inevitable response, what happens? The foremen deliver the message. They successfully terrify the people who scatter everywhere, trying to find enough stubble and vegetable debris to make bricks to meet their quota. And they fail. They fail to meet quota uh, to make as many bricks as they used to. So Pharaoh has the foreman beaten for their failure, um, which is brilliant management. Management squeezes the supervisors. Supervisors squeeze the employees. Abuse, like all excrement, flows downhill. And the whole thing is theater, because it's not about bricks. It's not about straw. It was an impossible task. It wasn't meant to be completed. It was supposed to end in the foreman being beaten and humiliated, and then being sent back to their own people mad, ready to inflict on their underlings the same or more than what they received, so that everyone would know what rocking the boat led to, so that the well of faith would become so poisoned by these negative experiences that the next time no one would listen when some vagrant came in from the desert saying, thus says the Lord. And it works. The foremen side with Pharaoh. They go to Pharaoh and try to explain that it's not their fault. Uh, they, they refer to themselves as his servants. Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants this way? Three times in the text. And so when we say, well, Exodus is leading towards this question, who will the people obey? Who will the people serve? Well, the foremen are, are at this moment at least, decided, well, we serve you, Pharaoh. We're on your side. They, they, they hope to make a deal with the devil, as it were, um, and it's not going so well for them. The response has its intended effect, though. I, I wasn't going to tell the story, but I will. Um, my, my dad was an executive for a propane company in the 80s and 90s. Well, several, actually. And, and he it went one point to an executive retreat at um, the, the CEO's uh, restored uh, Revolutionary War era mansion. And, and they were just you know, talking about business stuff. And, and the CEO said, you know, Rob, most people are rut people. If you threaten to take something from them, they will cling all the tighter to it and be all the more grateful to it. So when I need more out of my employees, when I am worried about morale problem, I don't make things better, I make things worse. And it works. And you, you lose about 20% of the people, the, the original thinkers, the entrepreneurs, the people who are just mad. They go away, but you can always keep your rut people, and those are the ones you want. That, that made my dad sad inside. It makes me sad inside to reflect on it, but there's a scary element of truth to it. Because, I mean, the, the guys' millions and his awesome restored Revolutionary War era mansion attested to there being some logic to that observation. So the foreman come encounter Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron are waiting. They're like, how did it go? And they blame Moses and Aaron. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink to Pharaoh. And they tell Moses, if he kills us, it's because you put the sword in his hand. And so we go deeper. Okay, the people are terrified. The, the foremen cling all the tighter to the advantages they have. What's the fallout on Moses? You know, God's called man, because, you know, it, for our purposes, that's, that's kind of the first place we're going to want to identify. Okay, sure, the, the rabble and the, the turncoats, they're not responding to the fallout of the world's response. Well, but how about Moses? He's our guy, right? Well, it shakes him. It rattles him. All that confidence, all that momentum that had built up by coming back to Egypt, performing the signs, being accepted by his people, it burns away um, in the fire of this trial. 
good feelings are gone. He doubts. He asks himself, what am I doing here? He, he asks God, why did you send me? Nobody's been saved and things have only gotten worse. And the chapter ends. The scene doesn't. Um, and next week, actually, one of our, our faithful deacons, Kevin Malone, uh, will share with us God's response to Moses' cry of despair here. So stay tuned for that. Um, but I want to halt at this moment and leave us here in the tension of this unresolved trial if for no other reason than because very often that's how life is. God moves in the world to claim out of the world a people for himself and the world responds to punish, to intimidate, and whatever else it needs to do to keep its grip on its captives. So what, what then should the believer do? You know, the, the, the lazy Bible approach is to say, oh, hey, Moses is the hero. Be like Moses. We, do we want to be like Moses? <laughs> uh, I don't think doubting and questioning God, you know, what are you doing, God, is our final answer. Now, it's a shockingly real one, and it should resonate with us because I think we've all been there. And if, and if you haven't yet, get strapped in because it will probably happen. Um, but I don't think it's ultimately where we're called to, to end in in our emotional struggle with the trials that we face. And so, so I kind of ask people, you to reflect on your own experiences. How do you respond when the name of God is blasphemed in your hearing? When your hope in Christ is reinterpreted by the world as a, as a sad, pathetic attempt to come to grips with whatever unresolved emotional or existential issue that you as a deficient uh, human being possess. When, when your character, your judgment, your mental state, your patriotism, your, your human decency are all questioned or outright attacked because you regarded those lying words prefaced by, thus says the Lord. Do you get mad? I do. Do you get frustrated? Depressed? Do you shut down and disengage? Do you, do you cave in and accommodate and, and hide your actual belief in the hope that the world might cut you a break? Do you take smug satisfaction in the fact that you're going to be in heaven, chilling poolside with Jesus while they're all in hell? Um, do you get tired and weary down to your very bones watching one more person dead in their sin, vomiting even more death and hopelessness into a world already overflowing with too much of it? How do you respond? What is the effect of the world's response on you? Think about it. Think about the times in your life where you've been confronted by the irreconcilable differences between thus says the Lord and thus says Pharaoh. How does that play out in your heart? Where do these problems lead us? Is there a solution? I believe that there is. Because to some extent we've taken a snapshot. We're, we're, we're looking at just this part and, and as I've already said, the story goes on from here. Pharaoh plays his hand at attempting to thwart God's purposes. And in chapter 5, that's all we see. But that's not all there is. Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And we know from what God has already told Moses that Pharaoh and indeed all Egypt are about to face 10 plagues worth of finding out exactly who the Lord is and why they should obey him. Pharaoh played his hand, struck his blow, did his damage. And now God will soon bring his mighty hand down in response and everyone will see whose purpose it is will stand. We've seen the world's response and though it can be the hardest thing in the world 
to do when the pressure is on, when even your own people are blaming you, as it was in Moses' case, when you're doubting yourself, as it was in Moses' case. And in that moment, you wait. You wait for God's response. God promised he would save these people. Pharaoh said, that is a lie. What can you do? In faith, you wait. You wait for God to vindicate, to justify, to make good on and make known the truth of himself and the reliability of his promises. Now, whenever I, 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 I poke at the biblical concept of waiting, I, I always feel obligated to, to counterbalance it with this, this one point, and that's that, hear me as believers, there's work to do. Uh, an engagement to be had with the great evils of our day. And we must never cease giving voice to the words of hope which we once received and had changed our own lives. But inevitably, the world will respond to that belief and we will be opposed. We will be maligned and we will not be able to ultimately resolve the question. We won't be able to settle the matter. The irreconcilable differences will remain. We'll speak our peace. We'll, we'll hold up Christ as truth. And the world will hold up countless and innumerable alternatives that are united only by the fact that they are not Christ. Who is right? Which camp has in fact given regard to lying words? So we wait. We wait because our response, whatever it might be, is unable to bridge the gap between us and the world. We are unable to once and for all vindicate the claims and promises of God. That's not our job. So much, it's so difficult that some days the battle is just to believe ourselves, much less convince anybody else. Because serving God will be met by the world's opposition, believers must await the vindication of God. That's what I believe that the takeaway today truly is. Because serving God will be met by the world's opposition, believers must await the vindication of God. Earlier we, we, we read from the first epistle of the Apostle Peter, chapter 4. Kevin kept it between the buoys. It was awesome. <laughs> and, and I hope you can see why we read that. The world is hostile to believers. But that shouldn't surprise us. It was hostile to God first. And to seek after us, to, to save us, to, to complete in fullness and finality the saving work that in many ways he began so long ago with Moses, God entered the world that was hostile to him. In the person of Jesus, God faced the full, undiluted, unmediated hostility of the world to himself. The world hates God. God's not here, so they come after us. God was actually here, and he had all of their attention. The opposition and hostility we receive as believers isn't our own, but rather sharing in the sufferings of Christ. As believers, we'll be maligned. That's a given. Socially dishonored, verbally ridiculed, mocked and scorned. And we know that this is just splashover. Splashover from the real hatred which was and is and always has been directed at God himself. And as we suffer, however great or small, we take, knowledge, we take comfort in the knowledge that Jesus didn't think himself too great to endure mockery with us, for us. All the Gospels include the Passion account. As his head was, was covered and he was beaten and the crowd taunted, who was it that hit you? Prophesy! As, as a, a crown of thorns and a royal robe was placed on him and everyone bowed in mockery saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and spat on him. 
as they crucified him and passers-by jeered, you claim to save others, come down and save yourself. The world responded to God coming to save them with mockery, torture, and death. <laughs> Forget thus says Pharaoh, thus says the people that, that God brought out of Egypt, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. The world played its hand, and as it did so, as those events unfolded, Jesus waited. He did not vindicate the, himself, though at his word a legion of angels could descend from heaven and avenge with terror and blood this boundless affront to the majesty of God. Out of mercy to us and to all who have ever believed and all who ever will believe, Jesus waited for vindication to come from the Father. Not to satisfy or avenge himself, but instead to make a way for sin to be atoned for and vengeance itself to be forever satisfied. To claim for God a people out of the world set free from its clawed grasping hands that go down forever and ever into the darkness that burns. Are we maligned? Yes. On that silent Saturday after the crucifixion as Jesus' body lay in the tomb, what do you think they said about Jesus of Nazareth? He was a madman, that he was a failure, that he was a fool? <laughs> that, that the truth of what he claimed had, had, had clearly been made manifest. He failed. He died. What did the apostles think? What did, what did Peter and James and John think? Do you think they were as shaken as Moses was? I wonder if more so. And on that following Sunday morning, which we now call Easter, the Father vindicated Jesus and his message of salvation and his claim to be the only begotten Son of God as he rose him from the dead. As the sword and sting of death shattered on the cross of Christ, every mockery was answered. Every attempt to put him to shame was shamed in turn. Hope was vindicated. Belief in his name was vindicated and now as believers we can wait for the final day when the trumpet of God shall sound with terrible and glorious clarity and the voice of Christ like an archangel will thunder from heaven announcing the raising of the dead and the coming of final judgment before the throne of God. And at that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your hope and faith and belief in Jesus will on that day be vindicated. And is that day worth waiting for? I answer, yes. Because Jesus reconciles the irreconcilable. Because God has responded to the world in Jesus. He took us out of the world and he's calling others. May I comfort you, may I, may I comfort myself. No one is a lost cause this side of the grave. Pray on, pray for the lost amongst you. However sorely you have been mistreated by other non-believers, by them themselves. You were once lost and are now found in Christ. Though you were dead in sin, God reconciled you to himself. Trust that the shepherd and overseer of our souls is indeed, as we sometimes sing, mighty to save. My brothers and sisters, may I encourage you to await God's final vindication of your hope with hope, with joy, with, with purposeful labor, knowing that the hour grows late and Christ does indeed hasten to return. Know that when you're reviled, you stand with your master and he with you. And that this passing and momentary affliction, as Paul writes, 
will soon give way to a surpassing weight of glory beyond compare. May we endure the world's opposition with the grace that God showed us even when we were in opposition to him. As long as the Lord should tarry, let us praise God. Let us praise his matchless grace all the days that we have remaining to us, be they many or few, secure in the hope that one day our hope shall be vindicated. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, and in your name, amen. Dear Lord, thank you that, that the task of saving the world, of convicting the world of its sin, of, of bringing people to life does not rest with us. We cannot do it. God, thank you that, that though we are crushed, though we are afflicted, though we are maligned, that these light and passing things are, are but a foretaste of what you have, have suffered in our place and are, are, are childbirth pains for the greatness that is coming. God, we thank you. God, we love you. God, in hope, expectantly, we, we cry out, we wait, knowing that you're coming. That at the end of all things, that we will not be found having put our faith in a false Messiah. That we will not have put our faith in lying words. That, that you are real, that you are as true and good and faithful and powerful. As, as these words of scripture and as the experiences of our lives confirm, as our changed hearts as we've been reconciled to you in Christ confirm to us. God, by your Holy Spirit, we pray, and in the matchless name of Jesus, we cry out your greatness. Amen.